0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of Life Point Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today I want to talk to you about the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you were adamant absolutely adamant about something only to find out you were completely wrong the whole time is it not interesting that the extent of our adamancy and our rightness is always proportionate To the depth of our incorrectness and our wrongness, right? And then when we're exposed, we're left not just humbled, but so often humiliated. Sorry, this is personal testimony time, and I just don't know how else to share it with you other than to make it like it's all of us. (laughs) Why is it so hard to be humble? Right? Why is it so hard to be humble? Well, let me offer this idea as we walk into today's message. Humility surrenders everything that human nature desires. All self-glory and self-worship. When something presents itself to us as worthy, then we gladly give up glory to worship what is more glorious. And what I present today to us is this, that Jesus is the only one who is truly worthy. And that's the big idea I want to leave you with today, that Jesus is the Christ, God's Savior, who is worthy of all glory and worship. When you see that word Christ in the New Testament, it's not just his last name. Jesus Christ. It is his title that reminds us that the promises of God's Messiah given throughout the scriptures are fulfilled in the one whom God has assigned the title of Christ to, and that's Jesus. And that's why I say today we're talking about the Christ of God. Jesus is God's Savior, worthy of all glory and worship. And I want us to see today four reasons Why I want to persuade you to believe in Jesus as God's Savior and to receive his eternal life. Let's begin in verse 22 and we'll read as we work through the remainder of the chapter. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, pause there for a moment, is it not interesting? I mean, imagine this, visualize this if you will, it's Christmas time, right? It's winter, Jesus is in the temple for the grand celebration and in this time the Jews gather around him and you can feel the warmth of the season, right? Maybe you can see the sarcasm dripping off of my face even now. And they say, please, please tell us plainly if you are the Christ or not. You see, the irony found in the Pharisees' words is something that intrigues me. For it exposes the hypocrisy and it reveals the nature of the human heart so often when they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? It is almost as though they really want to know. Except they've had every opportunity and have been told repeatedly, as we've seen since the beginning of this account. But they say, if you are the Christ, if you're the fulfillment of God's promise in all of our scriptures, tell us in such a way that we're convinced. That's what they say. We know the Jews rejected Jesus. Why? Because they loved their religion. And their drive to worship was simply the motivation to antagonize Jesus, to do something that made, it, that made them want to worship him more than their religion. But what we're going to see is that wasn't possible for so many of them. Let me go back to this word plainly because I think it's a key for our understanding in this text. The sense of the word as they use it, not only its meaning but the context that John uses it here, simply means this. Plainly means to willingly undertake an activity that involved risk or danger. Especially that of being honest or straightforward in what you said or the way in which you said something. So that's what they're asking him to do. Jesus, be willing to take a risk, to enter into danger and be honest with us and straightforward. Man, be radically authentic. That's what they're saying to him. And it would seem as though there's a measure of genuineness to this. So the opening phrase completely fulfills the essence, though, of what they're asking of Jesus. Where is he? He's in the place that the people who most want to kill him spend the most of their time and where their arguments are most hardened against him. But never mind that he's already demonstrated that kind of courage in what he's done. They still demand he do a little more. You see, the problem was that their pride would not allow them to accept Jesus. For the pride of life always demands what it wants in the way it wants it and isn't interested in anything that doesn't respond in the way it demands. Pride, friends, is the root of all unbelief in our heart. Instead of wanting to know if Jesus was God, they provoked him. They were rejecting him with their inquiry of him. And they rejected the one and they rejected the way that God had sent him because it didn't fit their idea of God. One thing we can never forget is this. We're really no different than the Jews. It's not about the Jews it's about what pride and arrogance and religion and self-righteousness does to our heart. That's what this passage is about. We may not worship the same object or in the same way, but we all live to worship. And that's the first reason that I would beckon up on you today to believe in Jesus. Here it is. Jesus created us to worship him and to give him glory. That's why Jesus was back in the temple, the seat Of tension and ridicule in his day. You see, every person is wired to worship. Every moment of every day, through every breath, we constantly are on the look for glory so we can affirm its worth. That's what worship is. That's what worship is. Every person is created in such a way to worship, to display the glory of the Creator. But as we're told in Romans, we've substituted the creator, capital C, for the created, little c. And we've assigned the glory that is due to him upon the things that we put in his place. And so the Jews' request for courage to speak straight was little more than an expression of their own arrogant rejection of him. You see, in response to human arguments against Jesus, here's what God says. For what can be known about God is, are you ready, plain to them, Romans chapter 1, because God has shown it to them. You see, friends, the problem is never that God has failed to reveal himself. God has given us everything that is necessary and sufficient for the knowledge of salvation But out of pride and arrogance and false worship, we've rejected Jesus in the way that God has presented him or even for the person that God has presented for some other lesser glory. We consume our life with, we're caught up in worshiping lesser glories through false idols by granting them false hope. But Jesus reveals himself as God who is glorious above all others and who is worthy of all worship. And so I beckon upon you today to be persuaded to believe in Jesus because he created you to worship him and to give him glory. And until you do, until you do, your search will never end. Your satisfaction will never be found. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. is reiterating what he's already said and what God's already made plain that he and the Father are one. And so when they provoke Jesus... Their pride actually holds no recourse, no strength towards the humility of Jesus's strength in his response. He remains lovingly, humble, and courageous, even in response to violent opposition. That's where we're headed. They've already dropped dropped rocks a couple of times. They're willing to pick them back up, and Jesus knew that. Jesus simply told them, but they didn't believe. So he explains the nature of his work and he shows how his work is the same work of the Father. And he shows them how his words are the same words as the Father. So when his words and his actions align, that's evidence, friends, evidence, And to believe these words and these works is to recognize him for who he is, that he is the Christ of God. But to remain in unbelief is not only to not know him, but to block yourself from being able to know him. Now let me just pause here and say something about what I'm going to say. Because what I'm about to work us into, hopefully with tender compassion and 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 care and concern in the way I present it is one of the most divisive doctrines that the church teaches today. The eternal security of the believer. If you struggle with the security of your salvation, might I just invite you to buckle your seatbelt. And with open hearts and minds and ears receive what I have to say to you today. Not because I've said it, but because Jesus is offering it to you. In this, Jesus says the reason they don't believe is because you are not among my sheep. Their bent towards unbelief blocks them from being able to know him. This is a very strong statement that Jesus has just said to them. He says that your unbelief not only prevents you from believing but it blocks the potential, the possibility for you to believe because you're so hardened in it. Unbelief, friends, not only causes the problem of their not believing, but it blocks the entire possibility of them becoming sheep. This is a strong, strong warning against the damnation of unbelief in Jesus And these are the words of Jesus. Unbelief actually holds a double condemnation that not only prevents one from believing in Jesus, but blocks them from becoming one of his sheep. And do not forget, their unbelief was rooted in religion. In other words, their religion was the very promised problem that kept them separated from God. You see, faith to believe is never a natural possession of a person. Faith to believe never comes from within you, but always and only is a gift from God. Romans 10. And it comes through the hearing of God's word when it is read, sung, proclaimed, preached, whatever the case may be, whatever the method may be. Friends, listen, I say this today because some of you are playing with God. You may be here today because you have a loved one or a friend that you appease by coming to church and, and doing this whole thing called Christianity or or even religion. But I want you to know. In that area of your heart where you believe you can live like you want to live and treat God as you want to treat him, and it'll be okay because when the time comes and the necessity for you to believe arises, you'll just do what you need to do and you'll believe. And I'm telling you, you're living in deceit, and your unbelief is not only blocking you from believing, but it'll also block you from becoming a sheep at all. That's the warning that Jesus is laying down. You don't deal with God on your time frame, in your manner, and in your way. When God reveals himself, the invitation to believe is there, but it does not remain forever. And then Jesus turns from those who are in unbelief to those who believe. And just as unbelief brings a double condemnation, he contrasts it with those who believe and are doubly blessed. Those who believe recognize Jesus' voice because they believe and have a personal relationship of following him. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. Friends, that know there is, is the knowledge of salvation. It's not the intellectual data bits that we store away in our gray matter, but rather it is the relationship of full knowledge that we have with God that consumes all of our life. Those who believe recognize His voice and they believe and they have a personal relationship with Him. That's one blessing. But the second blessing, He says this, and I give life to them eternal life. It's not just that we have a relationship, but I am pouring out into them something that is not within them. Something that comes from above, from the Father. The Father and I are doing the same work. That's why we have the same message. And I am working that in you. And so in our relationship, I am giving a second blessing to you of eternal light. And Jesus says he's uniting himself, his words and his work with the Father to show that they do the same work they are one. You see, a personal relationship with Jesus means that a person believes in him, in his life, in his teaching, and in his work. In the death, the burial, or the crucifixion, the, the burial, and the resurrection, and the reigning rule that he now has. We believe in Jesus to receive eternal life with God that is both eternal and secure. Jesus' explanation shows that believe in him leads to a relationship of following him and eternal life with him. That's what salvation is all about. Believe in Jesus simply means this, that all of life is placed on Jesus by faith to live all of life in him in the same way, by faith. Placing life on Jesus. Let me unpack that phrase a little bit for you. When we place our life on Jesus, it means we accept his death for us in our place as my own. I died with him. That's how the scripture teaches it. The demand of our life that seeks for identity, the desire within us for love and for acceptance, for purpose, for meaning, for satisfaction, for joy and for pleasure, we offer all of those things by faith to Jesus. And we say, Lord, I'll find all of this in you or I'll have none that comes to me outside of you. We place that every time it comes to us. Every time the drive for glory, the drive for pleasure, love, acceptance, all of those things, every time we're struck with the temptation to find it in something else, we say, no, that is found only in Jesus and only in him will I remain because I place my life in him. We confess our sins where we fall short of his glory in each of these areas and where we seek false idols and where we seek for lesser glories, substituting them for Jesus That's how we place all of life on Jesus. But then we live all of life in Jesus as well. We live by faith in his righteousness that he has put on us in our salvation. And we walk in the light of his truth, obeying his commands as Lord. He is Lord of life. We consider his life. We model the way that he lived in humility and lived in obedience to the Father's will in all that he did. And then God pours out his glory through hope and joy and peace and love into our hearts in ever-increasing measure that empowers us to live regardless of what surrounds us or what confronts us. Friends, eternal life with God through Jesus Christ that never ends is this, that God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus for us when we believe in him so that he can remove our sin, place Jesus's righteousness on us to bring us into his presence and to walk with us daily and ultimately, to bring us into his dwelling for all eternity. That's salvation. It is a double blessing. It is now and it is forevermore, but it is always and only with Jesus. And when we believe, it ignites in the heart and leads to obedience. This is how eternal life comes from God when we believe in Jesus. Jesus gives these two characteristics that define salvation. The life we have in Jesus, first of all, does not perish. Life with God will never end. Life with God will never end. And hear me, it cannot be taken away. Now, why do I take so much time on this? Because many of you believe that you can actually be saved And then lose your salvation. And I want to confront that, friends. If salvation were dependent on you, I'd be right there with you. There's no way you could do it the rest of your life, let alone for eternity. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is telling us is that when we believe, we are put into the hands of God. And in salvation, God holds us. We do not hold him. Oh, we take hold of him. That's what Paul admonishes Timothy. Take hold of the things for which you were taken hold of. But we take hold of God because he's already holding us. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. When we believe in Jesus and receive his life, we are held by God in his hand. There is nothing that anyone or anything can do to remove us from God's mighty grasp of salvation. And listen, friends, here's why this is important. Until you trust in the security of your salvation in Jesus so that you rest in God for all things, It's not so you can blow it off and go, now I can go live however I want to live. You would never do that because the driving force of your heart is a flame that burns with love for God. You want to walk as he walks. And until you rest in the security of your salvation so that you trust in Jesus for all things. You will never be ready to follow as he leads and where he leads. Listen, friends, when God calls you to something and you go, God, I don't know if I can do that or not. I want you to know you're trying to take hold of what God's already holding in his hands. Settle this today, friends, or you will wrestle with questions about God. You'll be all good as long as life's good. But when life strikes, you'll be struck like, oh my goodness, God's out of control. He's lost it. He dropped me. And that's funny until the news is crushing. And you're looking for something to anchor your life by. You'll always doubt that he's going to be as good as he says. And man, what is tempting you right now seems to be more glorious than what was promised to you by him. And you go, well, I don't know, God. That looks good right now. I know there's going to be some issues afterwards because I've already had it. But I don't know. That season that it's fun seems to be very promising. and, And I'm doubting your faithfulness. You see, until you... Trust in the security of your salvation so that you rest in the promise and the plan of God. You'll always find yourself steering away from following him. Woo! Almost had to obey that command. Ooh! You'll find yourself finding a way to navigate closely to God, but not living in him. Settle this today, friends. When God holds you, nothing can steal you. When God holds you, and here's the real problem most have, he has absolute control over you. There's our problem. Pride wants to go, well, what do you mean by absolute? Right? If God is sovereign at all, if God is sovereign at all, and he is, then he is sovereign at all times. And in all situations, your salvation is no footnote exception to God's sovereignty. Put a period at the end of that sentence and live like you know it is true. This is our second reason why you should believe in Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of our worship because his glory is like none other. He gives eternal life that will not end and cannot be taken away. His worthiness far exceeds any other. You see, Jesus doesn't deal with us as we deserve. And that's what makes us so uncomfortable about it, isn't it? I mean, if I wrong someone and they lash out at me, I understand that. I understand that. But when I wrong Jesus and he just loves me because he chose to, I don't get that. I'm like, no, God... Why don't you just strike me and then we'll be even? Because God says we're not even to begin with. That's why. So I choose to love you. I choose to love you. He withholds condemnation while he's answering our questions and our doubts. Whereas in the world, how does that get responded to so many times? We make a question or we make a doubt and the world goes, You idiot, have you not heard? How stupid can you be? And if they don't say it, the tone of their voice or the disposition of their body language can heap the weight on us even more than to hear it from their voice. But not Jesus. He lovingly answers our questions. He absorbs them. And he provides an answer. Sometimes that doesn't come through knowledge. It just comes through a sustaining peace that makes everything all right wherever you are. Sometimes he doesn't answer our doubts in the way we want him to. But he answers them in such a way so that when we look at them, they're not what they were at first. And let me say to you, until you learn knowledge-wise how that doubt will be confronted by the truth of Jesus, it's okay to see that doubt, but not to be ruled by it. He calms our fears and our insecurities. Like a baby who runs to their daddy and throws their arms around his leg and says, Oh, daddy, that pastor's trying to touch me again and love on me. Pat my back. Get him away from me. That's how most of the young kids look at me. Get him away from me. He's bald. Something's wrong with him. He quiets our concerns and our anxieties. He says, it's okay. Because I'm still in control. He gives us peace. He gives us meaning and satisfaction. He gives us purpose and pleasure forevermore to all of life. He holds us at all times. Friends, Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship because his glory is far above any And you might say, well then how is all of this worship? You see, when we worship, the object of our worship must be able to hold the weight of glory or the weight of the demand, the weight of expectation that we put upon it that fills our life weight is determined by the demand of our need to fully satisfy us and so we may be holding a false idol but when life's all good and it's not putting much weight on it it seems like that idol's doing a good job but when life gets heavy and that idol doesn't sustain us it destroys us because well what happened we were adamant about how right we were and when we were proven wrong by what we gave worship and glory to just made us feel like a fool When Jesus shows his glory, that he is enough, that he satisfies our life with all that is good, we know he is worthy. He proves himself worthy by giving more than our demand requires or requested. And doing this all for all who believe. You should believe in Jesus because he's the only one that is worthy of worship. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Listen, friends. Verse 31 is the commentary that shows us the motivation behind verse 24. You hear that? They never wanted him to speak plainly. They demanded he satisfy their expectation. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Oh, how inconvenient factual evidence really is, right? And that's what Jesus appeals to. The Jews answered him, it is not good for work, excuse me, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because being a man, now Hit the pause button there for a moment. There are many who will tell you God never became a man. You can simply tell them. John 10 verse 33 tells us that everyone who encountered Jesus when he walked on the earth was fully convinced he was fully a man. Period. Issue settled. Let's move on. Being a man, make yourself God. God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If they called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Let's pause there. His words absolutely enraged the Jews so that they wanted to stone him. And he just simply said, which of my works deserves stoning and they said oh it wasn't because of all the good works because we tried that and that didn't work rather it's because of what you claim you claim to be God and we say that is blasphemy one thing that we should definitely note here is simply this that in all of this dialogue and exchange Jesus has actually done what they originally asked him to do has he not you remember the sense of the definition of the word plainly that I gave to you all ago, willing to confront hardship, risk, and danger just so you can speak in such a way that people can understand. That's what Jesus has done, and yet they weren't really looking for that. They were trying to find some other reason with him. He didn't flinch at the threat, but he remained confident to confront their claim. He answers them by citing Psalm 82, and he does so to unite his work with the Father. And basically what he says there is this, look, people have come all through the ages, and you yourself in your religion have recognized that they came from God because they did the work of God and they said the words of God. All I'm doing is I'm doing the same that they did, and yet you reject me when you've accepted all of them. And his point is simply this, he's claiming to be the Son of God, the Christ. In other words, they ask, tell us how, plainly, he's already done that, if you are the Christ. He just did that. And yet, they can't see it because they don't want to see it. He revealed that he is the Christ of God. You see, the real question is this. Who is it that is blaspheming when Jesus does God's work and he says who he is and the two of those things, what he says and what he does, agrees and they still deny it? Who's blaspheming now? You see, blasphemy is not only calling that which is not God's work as God's work, which is what the Jews claimed that Jesus was doing, but blasphemy is also calling what is God's work not God's work. And that's what the Jews were actually doing. They were the ones committing the sin that they were accusing Jesus of and breaking the law. And all Jesus did was expose the hypocrisy of their unbelief. And that's the third reason to believe in Jesus, friends. Because Jesus as truth confronts all deceitfulness of self-justification that we present. When the light of truth shines in our life, there is no deceit that can remain. The rock-solid justification that sin has built on lies and deceit in our life, they simply vaporize when the truth of Jesus shines. That's what John told us in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness never wins when light shows up. And sin attempts but never succeeds at outwitting Jesus. Truth cannot be defeated, it's eternal. And when our lives are built on lies and deceit, they always crumble because we're like the man who built his house on the shifting sands instead of the man who built his house on the rock. And Jesus is coming to tell us, hey, you are founded on shifting sand. You are headed for destruction. Put your house on the rock. That's all Jesus is trying to do when he confronts us. It's an act of love. It's an act of compassion. It's an act of grace. And Jesus shatters the deceit of sin so that he can build our life on him the solid rock. When the truth of the gospel of Jesus is preached, we will always be exposed for where our life is harboring and built on sin. Friends, we fill our lives with so many false idols and we try to get glory from them because we hope in them. That's called false worship. We use false idols in these ways because we think it allows us to maintain some sense of control over our life. But when they never produce the glory that we put on them in the demand of our life, it crushes us. You see, false worship is when we attach a value or a power to an idol that does not because it cannot produce the glory that we expected from it and we want from it and that we invested in it to get. It's a bad return on investment. Glory... Is weight The very aspect of the word in the scripture is a word that means weight. The greater glory, the heavier it is. And that's what I want you to see. I don't use object lessons very often because they typically, in my experience, have more power to overrule the message than to help the message, what they're intended to do. But today, I can't help but not. You see, worship is when we ascribe value and glory to something. We give it. We expect it. From it and we assign to it let me let me show you what i have in my object lesson for us today it's not a surprise it's okay nothing's going to jump out at you it's a half dozen eggs you can buy them in half dozens now you don't have to buy a whole dozen you don't have to buy a dozen and a half two dozen five dozen or whatever you can buy a half dozen and each of these little eggs if i don't drop it represents something that is precious to us in our life. But when we ascribe a value to them that they cannot hold true to, we assess a worship upon them that will ultimately only crush and destroy us. Oh, these are precious. I love. And you know what? I can have them this way or I can put them this order and this, I can measure them the way I want. And each of these eggs represents a way in which we offer false worship because they're false idols. And all is good as long as the weight of the world hovers above them and doesn't really weight down upon them. But what happens day by day, season by season, the weight of life happens, right? And when the weight of life crushes them, we realize they're not going to be able to sustain it. But we've assigned a value to them that they're not worthy of. Let me draw an image for you to help you understand what happens when that happens. Just a minute. Now, if I were to drop this bowling ball on these eggs... Can anyone guess what might happen? And all the students are like, Do it! Oh, you gotta do it! You cannot do it, right? And all the adults are going, He'll never, do- you're right, I'll never do it because we'd never get the egg out of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, you know, the pastor dropped the egg on the Bible and, and the floor, and we had people sitting, it might even hit y'all, I don't know. So it's okay, I'm not going to actually drop the bowling ball on the eggs. But I think you get the imagery. When we worship false idols and we assign or expect a glory from them that they cannot sustain, it's even worse than the contrast of this bowling ball being dropped on these eggs. We do it every time we put expectations on our kids that they're not intended to satisfy to try and complete or justify our parenting. We do it when we put expectations on our spouse to try and make them something God never intended them to be and we don't find pleasure or joy in that relationship. We do it when we assign more value and worth onto our job. We do it in all these different ways. We do it on friendships. When people don't satisfy us or or, or don't be a friend to us the way we think they ought to be, it's like dropping a bowling ball on an egg. It's never going to hold what you're putting on it because it was never intended to. Jesus would be like dropping the bowling ball on the floor. You may hear a big thud, but it's not going to hurt the concrete. Why? Because he can withstand it. He can hold it. When we assign, give, expect a glory or value that is greater than an idol's ability to maintain or sustain, life gets crushed life gets messy and we get exposed we get exposed as a fool in our worship because the fool says in his heart psalm 14:1 there is no god and in the fool's mind he's justified on what he's saying in his heart because proverbs 12:15 says the f- way of a fool is right in his own eyes every time We assign glory to a false idol. We live as a fool in the eyes of God. We want to worship, so we seek a God. But when true God shows up and says, give it all to me and I will give back more than you could possibly imagine, we just simply don't know how to respond. Not only can we not imagine, but far more. He exceeds our ability and our power or knowledge to control it. We become overwhelmed. And not only are we no longer in control, but now we must completely trust. And I'm telling you, friends, that's it right there. That's why people don't want to believe in Jesus, because they don't want to relinquish all control. They want to maintain some control so they can have some measure of glory in their own life because they think they can manage it. And I'm telling you, that is a lie from the pit of Satan's home in hell. You will not manage it and when it breaks apart your idol will be shown for what it's always been and then satan will make it think that it happened because it was just you the fact of the matter is that which we ascribe value and worth and glory to must be able to hold it and what jesus is saying is i'm the only thing that's going to hold you and if you'll believe in me i'll hold you and there won't be anything that gets to you you see that Not only that, but every time you put a heavier weight on me, I'll I'll return a greater glory than you could have even imagined. Every time you put a higher expectation on me, I will return to you a greater peace and comfort than you could have conceived of in your own mind. Listen, I may not answer every question that you present to me or the way in which you present it, but I can tell you this, I'll give you something greater. I'll take the question and make it a non-issue until I'm ready to answer it in the way that it needs to be answered. You see, sometimes we serve God in what He says. Sometimes we serve God in the way He says. But God never fails to bring His will about, not only in the way and the what, but in the perfect when, in the timing of God. That's what God wants you to understand today. We balk at complete worship because we must lose control. And that's how sin and idolatry works. That's why Jesus said, not only can you not believe to receive eternal life, but your unbelief is blocking you from coming in because you're so hardened in your sin and your unbelief that you'll have nothing to do. You don't even entertain what I say to you. The factual evidence that sits right in front of you, you disregard it. So you don't even know what direction it leads in. When we justify and validate ourselves, in anything more than Jesus, we'll always be put off by him. You see, the glory of Jesus is never outdone, but it shines to confront all deceitfulness of self-justification that we've built in our lives. You should believe in Jesus today because his truth confronts all deceitfulness of self-justification. Not so he can crush you, but so that withstanding the weight of your demand, he can show you how he wants to cleanse, forgive you and purify you and give you his righteousness. Verse 37 and 38, and I'll land it with this. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus points to his work and to his message as the work of the Father and his basis to believe. The evidence presents a clear testimony for them to know and to believe in him, but they'll not consider it so that they can understand it. You see, Jesus' words fell on deaf ears, it fell on closed minds, and it fell on unbelieving hearts, most importantly. The Jews opposed Jesus not because of evidence, but because of unbelief. Honest evidence deserves serious consideration, to follow it where it leads. One who truly seeks cannot dismiss evidence that demands consideration, but a person who doesn't want to know God will never look at anything that points to him or to admit that he does. Why? Because as Jesus said in verse 26, unbelief is blocking them from seeing it. Unbelief never looks at Jesus to consider who he is or what he's done, but only to accuse him and to blame him and to dismiss that he alone is worthy of worship and glory because you just don't want to release control to him. There's your fourth reason to believe today. You'll either believe and receive Jesus to worship him, or you'll live your life blaming God. Unbelief is never a simple dismissal based on a consideration of evidence, but it is a rejection Unbelief is a rejection because of a stronger belief that prevails. Somebody sitting in Jesus' seat on the throne of your life, and that somebody, if it's not him, is you. And until you are dethroned, you cannot enthrone and ascribe to him what he alone is worth. In the matter of faith and spiritual life, evidence is a beginning point, not an end goal. Faith follows the path of evidence but moves beyond where the evidence leads to that which it points. Belief always demands faith exceed and go beyond where evidence ends. And hear me, where the road of evidence ends, which is not far from truth, there remains the distance to receive Christ. That was the distance the Jews would not entertain and could not cross. That distance can only be crossed by faith. Faith always confronts every wall and every obstacle of unbelief. That's not allowing the distance between the evidence and believing to be spanned. When you believe in Jesus, you not only destroy by faith every obstacle and every challenge that is present, but also all that will form believe, friends, demands complete destruction and surrender of every form and every structure of unbelief in your heart. And because of this, the power and the motivation to believe must be greater than any and every unbelief that can or may arise. You see, the end of facts and evidence leaves one at the beginning point of faith. And the distance between those two points must be spanned by something greater. What is it that spans the distance between where facts and evidence have led you and where salvation begins for you love love while we were yet sinners christ died you see salvation is getting from here to here how are you going to manage it the bible presents salvation as god being here and coming here But if you just simply won't have it, you won't have it. Love is the power that reconciles us into a relationship with God through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ when we believe. You should believe in Jesus because he is worthy of all worship. And if you won't worship him, you will blame him and live eternally separated from him in condemnation. Jesus has come to bring all that you desire and demand in this life. He is the Christ, God's Savior, worthy of all worship and all glory.